Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello again and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guest reveals the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they must also tell me the one thing they regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the comedian and actor Les Dennis, who started his career performing in the social clubs of his hometown, Liverpool, until winning the talent show New Faces in 1974 which launched him onto our TV screens in shows with Russ Abbott and then with his comedy partner, Dustin G in The Laughter Show. Following Dustin's sudden death in 1986, Les continued as a solo performer and became the third host of the quiz show Family Fortunes, which he hosted for 15 years. His obvious comic skills remain strong, as his appearance in Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant's TV series Extras demonstrated. In 2014, he joined the cast of Coronation Street, playing Michael Rodwell, a petty burglar. I hate it when people are petty, don't you? Throughout all this, Les built quite a catalogue of stage work, playing the lead in Me and My Girl and Amos Hart in Chicago in the West End, as well as roles in Skylight, Mr. Wonderful, Misery, High School Musical 2, Hairspray, The Addams Family, Spamalot, and Legally Blonde, The Musical. In 2019, he fulfilled a lifelong ambition when he performed in The Provoked Wife and Venice Preserved in Stratford for the Royal Shakespeare Company. So let's hear the boy from Speak in Liverpool speak and find out what he treasures and the one thing he wants to be rid of. So let's... We've only met a few times in our lives, haven't we? We have only met a few times, yeah, yeah. But instantly, I think we've kind of just got on. 
Yeah, that's what our business is, isn't it? You know, you straight away on a first day of rehearsal, you know immediately with the people you're going to get on with and connect. Mm. And then when you meet them years later, you just pick up where you were before. Absolutely. It's a kind of nomadic existence, isn't it? So, you know, we all know that we're all disparate people going all over the place and that one day we will probably meet again and maybe work again, be fortunate enough to work again together. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're going to talk about some things you want to put into a time capsule. Yeah, me. yeah. Brilliant. This was really difficult. Was it? Yeah, because you want to put so many things in. So to kind of narrow it down to four that you love and one that you maybe don't love so much is tough, but I've, I've got a list for you, I think. Great. All right, well, let's work our way through it and see what happens. Okay. All right, what's your first thing? The first thing that I'm going to put into the time capsule is an EP. Uh, and for people that might be too young to know what an EP is, it was somewhere <laughs> between a single and an LP. Um, what's a single and what's an LP? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It's vinyl. It's a vinyl record called Sammy Davis Jr. Impersonates. Um and my mum and dad were big Rat Pack fans. On our radiogram, we had all the Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Tony Bennett. All those were the kind of things that my mum used to play on the radiogram. And one night uh, when I was about 12, my mum and dad went to see Sammy Davis Jr. live to his one-man show at the Empire Theatre in Liverpool. And they came back uh, with the program. And my mum, who was a great storyteller and was so vivid in, you know, she would, if she'd been to see the film Shane, she'd come home and tell me the whole plot and tell me exactly, <laughs> absolutely word for word and describe it brilliantly. Or if she'd read Dracula, she would tell me and vividly when we were standing in the kitchen when I was a kid, I, I used to be her commie chef on a Sunday when my dad went out for his two pints before our Sunday dinner. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so she would tell me these stories of things that she'd love to see. And she just never stopped talking about this night with Sammy Davis Jr. and how he had, he'd, he'd had um, uh, guns in holsters and he'd done this whole kind of gunslinger routine and his tap dancing and his amazing crooning um, and just a great showman. And mm. also his impressions. She kept going on about his impressions. And she brought this EP that I put on. And I then I was playing it every day. It was um, him doing singing impressions. People like Mel Torme, uh, Mario Lanza. Um, wow. He did a version of Sonny Boy, Climb Upon My Knee, Sonny Boy, doing Jimmy Cagney and um, Jimmy Stewart and, and all these great film stars. And that was kind of like, I thought, wow, I just i am obsessed with this. The, the idea that this guy becomes these other people so well. So that's how I started my act. I kind of collated his stuff along with maybe um, impressions of Freddie Parrotface Davis, <laughs> and um, who was around at the time and Steptoe and Son at that time, I put together a little act and, and went around um, charity shows. My mum took me because she had always wanted to entertain. When she was a kid, she had a chance of being on Carol Levis Discoveries. He was the kind of, which was Britain's Got Talent of its day. Uh, she had been standing outside the Empire Theatre when she was, I think, 14. And uh, Carol Levis was a big show on radio at that time. And um, the start of the show used to go paging Carol Levis, paging Carol Levis. And my mum stood at the, at the stage door and shouted, paging Carol Levis, paging Carol Levis. 
and Carol Levis walked out to the <laughs> stage door and said to my mum, if you've got the talent to match your cheek, then I will give you an audition tomorrow. Come back tomorrow at two o'clock. And my mum ran all the way home. They lived in Garston, um, which was, you know, on the outskirts of Liverpool, on the docks. She ran all the way home, excited to tell her mum that she had this audition. And her mum said, no, sorry, you start work in the Bobbins Works tomorrow. And she started work in a factory at 14, you know. Um, mm. So she didn't get her chance. So she saw in me that I wanted to do this. So I started with this Sammy Davis Jr. impersonations and did the talent competition where we went to Butlins. We used to go to Patheli in North Wales for one week a year. And one year when I was 14, uh, we decided to go to Filey because Patheli seemed to be too competitive. Everybody, you know, the talent competition at Butlins was when it got to the adult talent competition, it was quite massive. It was, um, it was the People National Talent Competition. And the prize was to get to the Palladium, and then it was a thousand pounds. That was a lot of money in the, it'd be about 68, 1968. You made a good choice to go to Butlins then, because we used to go to Pontins. Oh, did you? Okay. And the prize for that was they had the grand final at the end of the season. So mm. you got another week's holiday. Exactly. That was the thrilling thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Because I, I went on in Filey and I was 14 and I was, I was just eligible for the adult talent competition. And I won the weekly heat. I beat all these people who were in their 20s and 30s, all these <laughs> bands and, and, and great singers doing um, Sammy Davis Jr., Doing Jerry Lewis singing Lulu's Back in Town. Gotta get my old tuxedo pressed. Gotta sew a button <laughs> on my vest. And, you know, and, 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 and Jimmy Stewart, oh, well, well, when you're old and gray, dear, well, well, would you promise that you'll, you'll never stray, dear? Because, I mean, I, I gotta have somebody. And I got you, <laughs> sonny boy. And I, I, just, I just listened and listened. And, and I won the heat and went back for the, um, the free week, which was amazing at the end of the holiday. My mom had to come with me then. But as I got older, I used to go on my own for that because I used to then every year, that was my goal to go into the talent competition. And one year I was in it with a double act called the Harper Brothers who went on to be Cannon and Ball. <laughs> and, and we both lost. So, you know, so that was my beginning. And, and, and I think it conjures up for me that, if I listen to that Sammy Davis EP, I haven't got a copy anymore, but I've noticed it's on eBay and I'm going to order it as soon as, we, as, soon as I've finished with you and, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and listen again because it conjures up for me all the wonderful things that my mum did for me to kind of to get me into the business. She was, she was my inspiration, really. She kind of, she was a showbiz mother, but she wasn't like a pushy showbiz mother. She nurtured and saw that I wanted to do it. And she encouraged me right through. And she, I mean, she died in 1977. She, she didn't see any of the stuff really, but she kind of, in her heart, she knew I was going to be okay. She kind of really knew it. And she kind of, she wasn't a snob. We were working class, but she wanted us to do better. And she got us out of a prefab in, in Speak, and she got us into a council house in Childwall, which was, was quite posh for us. And she got herself a little money box, and she called it Mum's Car Box. And we all laughed because she was saving up for a car. But she saved pennies and sixpences and eventually got a car. And, and that car was the car that drove me around the working men's clubs and helped me start in this business. So that beginning, you know, that 
mm. nurturing by my mum and that finding that little thing, that EP was something that set me on a road. What a great inspiration as well, though. When parents do that, it's not like the pushy mum actually sort of living vicariously through you. It's very much sort of seeing the enthusiasm that she had and wanting you to have something she didn't have that she missed out on. Yeah. Yeah. And Selby Davis Jr. is is just the most extraordinary person to be inspired by. I remember seeing him do it on Sunday night at the London Palladium. Yes. As well. I worked with Lionel Blair and we did a play, Don't Dress for Dinner, and I became real friends with lovely Lionel Blair. And if you look, if you Google and find Lionel Blair and Sammy Davis Jr. live on Sunday night at the London Palladium, doing this amazing tap routine in a men's outfitters, you know, with, with bowler hats and umbrellas. And, and he comes to buy an umbrella, I think, Sammy Davis Jr. from Lionel in this sketch. And it's about seven or eight minutes. Wow. And it's live. And it's, it's incredible. You know, people always said, oh, well, Lionel, you know, he dances a bit. He danced a lot. You watch him with Sammy Davis Jr. He's incredible. <laughs> and, that, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough in my career to work with some great pros, you know, people who've taught me. I, you know, I did a summer season with Jimmy Tarbuck. That was my first summer season. And he taught me so brilliantly stagecraft, how to walk onto a stage, how to make the best of your seven minutes you've got, you know, or whatever. Maybe in, in a summer season, it was more like 12 I would have. Um, but he was wonderful and very nurturing again. Lovely. Uh, well, I do remember when I was a little boy, uh, I used to sing with my dad. Yeah, old time musicals, and occasionally we would do shows that weren't old time musicals, and we were able to sing other songs. And it's the only impression I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and it was me, amazingly. This is an extraordinary crossover. Yeah, it was me impersonating Sammy Davis Jr. Oh wow! Impersonating Nat King Cole. Ow. <laughs> That's, he did it so great. Go, come on, please. We, you know, you've got to give us oh, a bit it's of your. It's going to be terrible now. It's going to be really <laughs> terrible. Now. No, it's not. Okay. I used to sing, I used to sing, uh, hang on. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. That's amazing. That's so good. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I know exactly. You will have listened. I, I did the same with his Louis Armstrong. I used to do it in my act. And, and then I went to the doctors and I, I said, I'm, I'm getting a sore throat a lot. And he said, well, tell me what, what you're doing. I said, well, I do this impression. He said, stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> that was his advice. That Nat King Cole, you have listened to the intonation. And these guys were all about intonation, weren't they? You know, the, the selling of a song was as important as the tunefulness of it. You know, Sammy Davis yeah. Jr., Frank Sinatra, probably the greatest interpreter of those great American songbook classics. You know, he was, he was amazing. Yeah, beautiful. What a lovely thing to put in. That is a crossover. I have never done that impression apart from in an old people's home. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, thank you very much because I'd forgotten that I could do it. Well, you still can. It's still there. It's like riding a bike. I'm not sure I can do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Les, we're going to put Sammy Davis Jr. impressions yep. into the time capsule. I put it on a nice little portable. Dan set. That's the one. My sister had the dance set, and that's what the, the one that I could take away from the radiogram and play on my own. Yeah. Fabulous. 
Okay, that's your first item. So what's number two? Number two is a trip. Um, it's a school trip that we made in 1970. So I would be 16, 17. And it was a school trip with the um, English department. We went to Stratford, Stratford-on-Avon, for about three nights. And we saw plays at the Memorial Theatre, the, the RSC. Yeah. Um, and one play that I saw, it was, was Twelfth Night. Uh, and I think that Judy Dench was in it. But there was one actor that stood out for me. His name was Emrys James. He was amazing. He played First Day. And I just watched and believed in this powerful clown, this beautiful performance by this man who was funny, was engaging. And, you know, I think we were reading Twelfth Night and I hadn't really got it. And then seeing that production and sitting there and going, do you know what? That's what I want to do. I want, I, I want to do that. I want to be on that stage doing this. And I'd already started doing the working men's clubs, as we talked about. So I'd already started going down a, a particular route. But I remember then coming out and thinking, I so, I so want to, to go that way. And I was, I was in a, a group of people at school, uh, Clive Barker, the horror writer, and Jude Kelly, who went on to run the South Bank and uh, the West Yorkshire Playhouse. So I was in a great group of people when we did school plays and I loved them. But I think that that was the one time when I thought I want to do this professionally. Oh, hang on a minute. I'm already doing the clubs because I was doing the clubs while I was I was at school. Mm. So um, I went down the comedy route. But somehow in the back of my head, it was like, well, I, I want to one day be able to act. Um, but I thought about going to drama school and didn't because I was already earning. But what I did was as I got successful as a, as a comic, as an entertainer and family fortunes particularly gave me this opportunity, I could go off and, and do a rep play because we did family fortunes in three weeks. We did the yeah. whole series, 20, 26 shows over, over three weeks. So then I would, I would go and do. Uh, misery at the Oldham Coliseum or Skylight at the Watermill. And I learned the craft of acting as I got older, hoping that one day, you know, I might get to the RSC. And then weirdly, two years ago, I got a call from my niece, Jodie McNee. And um, Jodie is, uh, she's kind of followed in our family footsteps, really. She started as an impressionist. Mm -hmm. um, she had an act and she, um, she did talent shows. In fact, I hosted a show called Give Your Mate a Break, which was a, a big Saturday night talent show. And when the researchers came to me, they said, we found this girl. She's fantastic in Liverpool. She's this young impressionist. She's only 13. She's brilliant. She does these amazing impressions. And I had to... I thought, oh, is this going to be our Jody? And it was our <laughs> Jody. And I, I had to say to them, I had to declare an interest and say, she's my niece. And they went, oh, damn, we can't have her. She yeah. can't be on. But then she has carved out this career at the National Theatre and with Cheek by Jowl and at the RSC playing leads in, in Shakespeare and Restoration. And she called me two years ago and she went, Uncle Les, because our Jody, she still talks like that, <laughs> even though, you know, she can go on stage and do brilliant RP and, and be amazing, do whatever accent you want. She said, Uncle Les, um, I'm doing this play at the RSC. Uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy, uh, restoration <laughs> tragedy called Venice Preserved. And our director, Prasanna Puanaraja, 
he wants to know if I know if I can find a Liverpool actor to play me dad. And I went, oh, and I'm going, what, really? And she went, do you know any? Oh, no. <laughs> and I went, Jodie, hello. I think what she was doing, she was trying to work out, you know, would you do it? Yeah. And and I went, I I would love that. And she went, he'd love to meet you. So oh. I got to meet Prasanna the next week and Phil Breen, who was also directing um, The Provoked Wife, the restoration comedy. And, you know, I was right for the part. It wasn't nepotism in the sense that Jodie got me a job. I had to audition for it and and got to do it. And that was, you know, 50 years after that visit to the RSC of having watched Emerus James and thinking, I want to do that. I got to walk onto that stage in both plays, but particularly in Venice Preserved, to play this Venetian corrupt senator in this <laughs> massive tragedy. You know, and and to be on in the, the the very I was the first one to speak with this very long, complicated two-hander um scene with Michael Grady Hall, um, who played Jafir. And it's all about the fact that he and Belvedere, my daughter, Priuli's daughter, have secretly married, and Priuli is so outraged. So I had this two-hander scene, and I could almost, because you can see people at the RSC, you can see the people sat, you know, the way in the audience, mm. it's kind of lovely light. And it's kind of people sitting there going, that's that fella at the family fortunes. <laughs> and, and he's doing Shakespearean tragedy. And I think we might believe him. Wow. And so that was, that was incredible. And, and again, coming back to the connection with my mum, you know, my mum loved Shakespeare. She loved, she loved all sorts of the art. She, she had albums by Tchaikovsky as well as, you know, Greek's piano concerto, Tristan and Isolde, we had in the <laughs> radiogram as well as the, the crooners. So, you know, my mum would have been so thrilled for me to have made it to the RSC. But not only did I make it to the RSC, her granddaughter, oh. Jody, made it to the RSC in the same production, and we were playing father and daughter in this play. So that was just incredible. Yeah. Right at the beginning of this thing, we were chatting about the fact that when we first met, yeah, that strange thing where you instantly know that you like someone. Yeah, yeah. Within seconds. Yeah, exactly. And it may be because we are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I went on a school trip. We went on a barge, and we moored opposite the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I said to my mates, we should go and see a play. And they all said, no, we should go to the pub. <laughs> and they went to the pub and I went in and I saw Ian McKellen do Romeo. Wow. And I walked out of that place thinking exactly the same. That's what I want to do. And yeah. for me, it was only 40 years, but 40 yeah. years later, I did exactly the same thing, turned up there finally. Fantastic. Do you have a great time? Absolutely brilliant time. And the same feeling that you must have had, I know exactly the feeling you would have had, the two of you on stage together. It must have been so magical. It was incredible. And the season, you know, working with a group of great actors and and, and me worrying, thinking, oh, gosh, I'm not trained at all. And these guys all are. But, you know, being so welcome, going to the Dirty Duck, which, you know, I've, <laughs> I've been to, you know, because after that first visit, I went back to Stratford to watch again mm. and again. So the most amazing production of um, The Taming of the Shrew by Michael Bogdanov with uh, Jonathan Price. And yeah, I saw that. It was amazing, wasn't it? Was it? Amazing. it was incredible. We came on as a drunk at the beginning. And, we, and, and smashed then... the set. Brilliant. It was, wasn't it amazing? Amazing. And, um, yeah. and 
having watched that and then getting to go to do a season and having things. I remember somebody saying, oh, next week is Shakespeare gym. And I was like, what do we, is there a gym we can go to? And it was like, no, no, Shakespeare's gym. Um, we will have two hours in the rehearsal break where somebody, Greg Doran, the artistic director, or David Threlfall, <laughs> will come and, and, and do a, a two-hour session, pick a piece from Shakespeare that you'd like to look at. Wow. So, I mean, the training, the extra training, you know, uh, we weren't doing Shakespeare, but just learning from these people. David Threlfall did a masterclass for three, four hours, and I, I picked The Fool from Lear to work on and he was just fantastic with me and we and we talk now we're, we're good mates we're, again we found out that we were born both born on october the 12th 1953 exactly the same day so wow. we kind of like birth brothers we call each other <laughs> so um the only thing to me now is that i've done the restoration that i want to go back now and and complete that jigsaw and do the shakespeare i haven't done shakespeare me neither <laughs> no i did restoration Ledge, we're gonna to have to do it together we'll have to start yeah. the petition <laughs> Do you know, when I went to see Greg Doran when I was there, he said to me, if you came back, which part would you like to play? And I said, Feste. Feste, yes. Which was the part that Emrys James played. Yes. Well, when I worked with Michael Bogdanov, and I remember saying to him about having seen that, and, that, and I'd seen him, you know, that thing. Um, and I remember him saying to him, I'm probably too old for Feste, aren't I? He said, no, 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 Feste's an old dog. First day is an old dog. Yeah, playing it as a, an old man who just has had enough of all these people. Yeah. <laughs> it would be great. Yeah, it would be great. The yeah. rain, it rains yeah, well, every we'll, day. I'll fight it for you. We'd go together. Yeah, we'll go together. Yeah, double fest day. Oh, isn't God. that funny how we are crossing over so, so, so much? Absolutely. It's amazing, isn't it? I did yeah. say to Greg Doran, I told him the story of coming and seeing Ian McKellen and, and Francesca Annis, beautiful actress Francesca Annis playing Juliet. Yeah. And he said, oh, that was one of the plays that made me fall in love with Shakespeare. And I said, oh, really? He said, do you remember the moment with the hand? And I said, I do. Mm. And we both remember this particular moment from the play where yeah. Juliet is supposed to be dead and he kills himself and he's lying on top of her, dead, Ian McKellen, and she's lying there dead. And there was this enormous pause, or it felt like it, because we knew she wasn't dead. The stillness was astonishing. And then she suddenly took this enormous breath and, and threw her hand in it. She, she went, she went, <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> and the whole audience went, ah! <laughs> Even though we knew she was alive. Moments of magic like that are incredible, aren't they? Mm. I remember going to see the production where Glenda Jackson and Alan Howard, Anthony and Cleopatra, and... I have to say that I believe it didn't get great reviews at the time. And I, I remember sitting there kind of getting on with it. But then on came Richard Griffiths <laughs> as the slave who brings the asp. <laughs> and this couple of minutes of comic business <laughs> was just at such a crucial and tragic point. <laughs> Some people might call it upstaging, but it was hilarious. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Richard Griffith. So mm. moments in plays will make you go, I remember that production vividly. Well, God bless Emrys James, that's what I say. Yes, yes, thank you, Emrys. Okay, we will put Emrys James as Feste right. into the time capsule. Okay, that's two items, Les. Two items, yeah. 
Hello, sorry to interrupt, but we're going to take a short ad break here. We'll be back with Les Dennis in something slightly longer than an instant. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There you are, more than an instant, less than a hiatus. More a pause, I'd say. So let's not waste any more time, of whatever length, and get back to the lovely Les Dennis pronto. That means instantly. Um, well, I'm going to put in, um, and maybe we'll put all the items into this, I'm going to put in a big yellow suitcase. And when I say a yellow suitcase, it was a leather suitcase that was painted vivid yellow <laughs> with a, a red handle um and it was dustin g's props case oh. and again for people who may be too young i was in a double act with dustin g who was an incredible talent uh, massive massive talent who we lost too early um he died in 1986 um just as we were at the height of our kind of success as a double act he'd been a solo act before the same as i had for years but he was the kind of solo act that hadn't done a lot of TV, but had such a reputation in the cabaret clubs that he could top the bill. He could do a week at the Wookiee Hollow in Liverpool or, you know, um, Batley Variety Club. He could be a top of the bill there because he did these incredible visual impressions. He could he did David Bowie and put on a, a, a suit that he'd made and in a strobe light kind of uh, levitated. <laughs> he was so inventive with lighting, with props. He did the most amazing impression of Robert Mitchum, where he, I mean, he had that kind of, he had a look of Robert Mitchum, and he would just put this hat on, a cigarette in the corner of his mouth, walk forwards, and the audience just applauded because he looked, it was it was so brilliantly visual, and, and then he'd stand at the mic and say, can't do the voice. <laughs> <laughs> and Larry Grayson, he could just, you know, he, he, he would get teeth, he'd go to a dentist and, and have teeth made, and he'd put in a set of teeth, 
just kind of wet his hair down, put a pair of glasses on, and Larry Grayson was in front of you on stage. His impersonation of Larry Grayson was extraordinary. Yes, I remember it, it was. It was. Yeah. Well, Larry, when, when we had our show together, Larry came on and they did the two Larrys together, which was fantastic. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just sat and watched that. Um, becoming a double act with Dustin just came so accidentally. Um, I became part of the Russ Abbott Madhouse. I'd met him very briefly when we were both on a show called Who Do You Do in the, in the 70s, which was an impressionist show starring uh, Freddie Starr and, and Little and Large and Peter Goodwright and a lot of the older impressionists at that time. And I did a spot in it and just, Dustin did a spot on the same day and we just met briefly. But then um, when I got into Russ Abbott Madhouse, I remember saying to my then manager, Mike Hughes, who actually was was Dustin's as well. He, I, I called him and I said, but I don't know whether I can afford to, to stay in London. I lived in Liverpool. I, where am I going to stay? I can't stay in a hotel. I can't afford it. He said, well, Dustin usually rents a flat. So why don't you give him a call? So I called Dustin and he went, oh, I, hello, love. Yeah, I'm just watching a Betty Davis movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll come and see you. I was in Panto with, with Russ in, in uh, Stockport. He said, I'll come and see you tomorrow night and we'll talk about it because he rented a, a flat in Dorset Square mm-hmm. um, with another friend of ours, Russell, um, Russell Lane, um, comedy writer. And he said, yeah, there's two rooms and one's a twin room and one's a bunk bed room. You could have the bunk beds and when your wife comes, you'll be fine. So um, he came to the stage door, knocked on my dressing room door um, after the panto. And this imposing guy, very well-dressed, tweed jacket, nice button-down shirt, um, he looked like a movie star. He looked like kind of, he had that charisma and he had a bottle of wine in his hand. He said, I come bearing gifts. <laughs> and that was such a prophetic thing for him to say, because the gifts he brought into my life were incredible. He was my best friend. We, we got on so well. We laughed together within the show, the Madhouse show. There was one night where basically we, we were there as, as comedy feeds for, for Russ in different sketches and hardly worked together. And then there was a sketch where Russ played his Sid the Spiv character and he was doing this thing called selling impressions. So he had like a, a kind of market stall um, with lots of wigs and hats and things on it. And the idea was that me and Jeff Holland and Dustin and Michael Barrymore were all hidden underneath the barrow and he, D- Russ would get or the audience to shout out, right, what, what do you give me? What, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want a Tommy, Tommy Cooper? And then <laughs> somebody pop up and do a Tommy Cooper and um, oh, somebody, an audience would shout out Basil Fawlty and Michael Barrymore would get up and do his brilliant Basil Fawlty. And there was one point where somebody said, Vera from Coronation Street. And we all looked at each other on the <laughs> thing and, and Dustin just found a curly wig, jumped up and went, hey, you all right, kid? And the audience went mad for it, and mm. he, he, but he didn't have anything or know what to do from there. And I found a wig, and I came up and went, I don't really know, and I did the Mavis impression. Wow. And that came out of that sketch. And suddenly on that night, we, we heard the reaction that that got. And John K. Cooper, the producer, the next week, there were sketches for Vera and Mavis in the pub. Mm. So we became... That we became a double act by accident. People forget the effect of that. Yeah. At the time, there was not a person in the country who didn't do those impressions because of you. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> yeah. did it. That's right. Everybody would say, I don't really know. <laughs> we, we would yeah. all say it. I know. It's incredible that out of that came this 
this double act. And as I say, Dustin was already well known on the circuit as a as a solo artist and could command massive fees. And he went, "No, I'd like to do this." And we did Panto together with Russ, and it was Dustin G and Les Dennis in smaller letters. Mm-hmm. And Dustin, I didn't know, but he went to see Mike Hughes, um, and then Mike called me. Mike was very autocratic, old kind of like Samuel Goldwyn kind of <laughs> um, <laughs> entertainment entrepreneur. And, you know, you go, you're coming to see me and I'm going to tell you what's happening. And I, I went to see Mike and he went, um, Dustin is upset. And I was like, well, what, what about? He said, he's upset that um, it says Dustin G and Les Dennis in smaller. So we're redoing the poster because he thinks you're both doing the same job. And um, I think Dustin was on, I don't know, 800 pounds a week in Banto. Hmm. And I was on four and he went, Dustin wants to share his wages with you. No. And that was incredible. It was just amazingly generous hmm. and, and, and just showed that he had a commitment to what we were doing. Hmm. And we, we started that impression spot in that Panto. And Russ used to say, I have trouble following that <laughs> coming on as buttons after that because we, as the, as ugly sisters, we would work out, we would stand there with a, our wardrobe and, and chest of drawers and work out instead of how we were going to look, we'd work out who we were going to go as mm. to the ball. Oh, and we brilliant. did this impression spot. And like Vera Mavis, Vera Mavis hardly ever met in Coronation Street. Mavis was with Rita and Vera was Ivy Tilsley's mate. So what we ended up doing was putting the, the oddest combinations together. We put Billy Connolly and Bobby Ball together <laughs> and Larry Grayson and Boy George. And, you know, and these, these odd impressions, but they kind of worked. And, and it was two years that was a whirlwind because we got our own show, mm. um, we did live from a majesty's the night tommy cooper collapsed we were the next act on oh my god you had to follow him on while he was behind the curtain they wouldn't move tommy because the the, the paramedics were seeing him behind the curtain and it was live tv and the producer david bell and and jimmy tarbuck had said are you guys ready to go on and we were like oh okay and we went on and we stormed the show we did really well weirdly because the audience had felt uncomfortable but we managed to kind of get them back they wouldn't have known that Tommy Cooper was dying. No, 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 no. Um, when we were stood in the wings, I remember David Bell, when Tommy collapsed, David Bell turned and looked and said, is that a joke? And Tommy Jr., his son, said, my dad's got a bad back. He wouldn't be able to get up. He wouldn't do that. So that's when they cued commercial break and music. And then the, the chat went on on stage and the paramedics ran on. Mm-hmm. And, and Tommy was behind his red curtain and, and, and we went on, and, and when we came off afterwards, Dustin said, that's the way I'd like to go. I'd like to go with my boots on. And mm. two years later, he collapsed when we were in Panto. Dustin lived his life. He had a condition. He had a heart condition called cardiomyopathy. But nobody could tell him, you know, he was enjoying his life. He was loving it, and he lived it to the full. Mm. And nobody could tell him to to calm down. And, and you know, I, I, people were saying to me, you need to be his keeper. You need to look after him and make sure he's okay. There was only so much you can do. I could say, Justin, I know you just had a fag and I know you, you just had a brandy or whatever, you know, but I, I couldn't, you know, the, I think three days before Dustin um, collapsed, this was the kind of guy he was. He said, I'm going to go on holiday. He said, I, I can't work out where I'm going to go though. So I'm going to put lots of names into a hat and pick it out. And, and he put Bridlington 
<laughs> and Barbados <laughs> and, you know, and Colchester. He put a mix of, I mean, and I know that, I think he pulled out Bali and he was going to go to Bali. But if he pulled out Bridlington, he'd have gone to Bridlington. That's <laughs> the brilliant. kind of wonderful, funny man he was. You know, I remember him going, I need to lose weight. And he got a slender tone thing. And he'd sit there in a restaurant with it with it on, and put it on <laughs> high voltage. Go, ooh, that must be working. Ooh, I'll have the steak. I'll be able to have the steak. <laughs> he was just kind of, he lived his own life and he went the way he said he'd go. And, and, and the show that we were most proud of, the show where we did Bowie and Jagger with the phenomenal kind of we we did it almost exactly as they did um, dancing in the street we did past it in the street <laughs> and we did it on film properly beautifully done that series went out posthumously the one, one had gone out before he died and then they all went out a bit later after he died but um, good uh, you know there's there's a friendship and a career that we had and a wonderful partnership that we had that to me it was my launch pad for everything after I got family fortunes out of that. Mm. And my career as a solo artist is thank you to the legacy that Dustin gave me. And that ridiculous great big suitcase. Yes, the suitcase, the big <laughs> prop suitcase, which had all sorts in. Yeah. yeah. He was a fantastically individual and funny man. He did things that you thought, well, how's that going to work? Mm. He did a brilliant Basil Forty, didn't he? He did an amazing Basil Fawlty. Mm. And another thing that he had, and, and his sisters still got to this day, and I, I loved the fact that John Cleese wrote a letter to him saying, hello, Dustin, um, I watched your impression of Fawlty on Saturday Night TV. Loved it. Loads of people do Fawlty, but I think somehow you got the essence of the character more brilliantly than anybody else. Yours, John Cleese. How brilliant. And he had it framed and, you know, so he had that there. Dustin was a brilliant clown as well as anything else. Mm. And a talent that, you know, was just, he was 43, so he had so much more to give. People say, oh, you probably wouldn't have been around together now. But I, I think what we would have done was we would have gone off like the two Ronnies did and done things separately mm-hmm. and then come back together and always kept that because we loved working together. That's lovely, Les. Really lovely thing to put in. Right. Okay, so we're on to item number four. Yeah, item number four I'm going to show you. I know that people can't see it, but there you go. It's the Radio Times cover. This is for extras. Oh, yeah. And as you can see... I'm the only one that you don't know because there's, there's Kate Winslet, there's Ricky, there's Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Stiller, Patrick Stewart, Ross Kemp, Ashley Jensen, and then mm. there's me. And basically, when you get onto the cover of Radio Times, they invite you to the Radio Times cover party. Oh, brilliant. And you go along and, and you know, so there's been 52 covers. Mm-hmm. So you're going along to this party at the Dorchester, I think it was. And you're amongst all these people who've been on the cover of Radio Times. And usually there's two or three people rather than as many as there were there on that extras one. And I just met my wife, Claire. We'd just started dating. And it was the first proper date that she came with me on. (laughs) And and she's not in the business, you know, and I'd forgotten, you know, of course, I'm used to going to things and meeting people and, and being awestruck, being starstruck by meeting so many people. but. I've got used to it over the years, and Claire is on uh, one of our first dates. 
coming with me to the Radio Times covers party. Yeah, this is Ben Stiller. Yeah. Uh, this is Samuel L. Jackson. That's right. Oh, my God. Well, those people weren't there because I mean, in that, that photo, I didn't even get to meet them because we, that, that's a mock-up. We all did yeah. our photos individually. But I had my own episode in extras, yeah. which came to me at a time in my life. I thought, well, that's it. Things are over because, you know, I'd just come out of the Big Brother house, which wasn't probably my greatest moment. Um, and I, I did consider putting that in as the thing to bury. But then I thought, if I hadn't done it, Ricky Gervais wouldn't have called. Yeah. You know, because he called me when the phone wasn't ringing. I got a call from my agent saying, Ricky Gervais wants you to call him. And I thought, this is a wind-up. It's John Colshaw. So I called and got Ricky's voicemail and still thought, well, it's a wind-up. It'll be John Colshaw. <laughs> and then when Ricky called back and went, hello, uh, we want you to do this part. We've got this part for you. We want you to play a twisted, demented version of yourself in this new show extras so i thought well that's a great sales pitch twisted demented version and then he said to me he said think larry sanders think curb your enthusiasm and i was a massive fan of both those shows mm. and i realized that you know well okay then these people are going to be lampooning themselves and showing they have a sense of humor about it and if i get it right if you know i'll be able to show that i'm not less miserable as the press had decided to you know, there were lots of things like the end of my marriage was was happening just straight after Big Brother and all that stuff. So, you know, I was, you know, I had press outside my door, you know, from six o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night, waiting to get a shot of me looking miserable, walking with the dog mm. or whatever. So Ricky came with this chance and I seized it. And it's gone on to prove Ricky has said that whenever I meet him, he said, oh, it's everybody's favorite episode. Everybody loves it. And I think in a poll recently, it, it got top. And I'm, you know, I'm up there with, <laughs> with these massive stars who actually are doing a cameo, whereas my episode was about me. He said, mm. when I went in to see him and Stephen, when we were discussing it, he had the kind of the, the whiteboard on with all the stickers of, you know, the stars that were going to be in as cameo. And I said, and there's yours, the man. It's called The Man. Your episode is called The Man, which it didn't end up being called that. But it's about you and it's about um, I come and work with you as Andy Millman in Panto. And so it was a gift and it came at exactly the right moment where I could be seen in a different way. And when it went out on TV, we got to go to this party and Claire had to. <laughs> I remember at one point um, she reminded me, she said, what about that time? We were stood there with all these people and. David Attenborough and uh, Bob Geldof, uh, <laughs> Charles Dance, Ricky Gervais, Alison Stedman. And you noticed an actor. I said, oh, just going to go over, chat to somebody. And you went off on your own. <laughs> and she said what was amazing was that Bob Geldof turned to her and just had a lovely conversation with her and just chatted. Mm. But, you know, she's been the greatest support. You know, we have started again. I've got a grown-up son, Philip, who's 41. And we have two little kids, Eleanor and Tom, about to be 13 and 10. Mm. Out of that call from Ricky Gervais, my life has, has changed so much. Mm. And it's, it's fantastic. But when you say early on that you, um, that you quietly on the side doing, you know, you're doing family fortunes, making enough money yeah. that meant you could go off mm. and practice the skill of acting. Yeah. You did study it because that is one of the most difficult parts to play, to play yourself but not yourself. Yeah, yeah. I wish I'd been at that party. Yes. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Uh, we're going to put that into the time capsule. Great. So you can pop along for a, a glass of warm white wine anytime yeah. you like. <laughs> okay, final item. 
this is the thing you want to get rid of. Yeah. Um, like I say, I thought about should I put Celebrity Big Brother? But as I said as well, you know, if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't be where I am. And I think that about a lot of things in life that, you know, if you go, I don't want that, I hated that bit, but they are the things that then take you on to other things. So you shouldn't negate them and you shouldn't have regrets about them. So I've, I've gone for something embarrassing <laughs> and I've gone for it to signify those embarrassing mornings when you wake up, when you've had a drink and you wake up the next morning and go, oh no. <laughs> oh God. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. That, oh, did I? Oh no. Oh. And it, it was a lovely occasion and I had a great day. It was a Radio 2 Christmas party in a nice hotel in Kensington somewhere. And my friend Andy Davis, who used to co-present Jonathan Ross's radio show with him, invited me as his guest. So I went along, and the great and the good of Radio 2 there, Lewis Carney was holding this party for a lot of the presenters. So Chris Evans, lovely Ken Bruce, Annika Rice, Janice Long, uh, Tony Hatch, Tony Hatch, who all those years ago, he was on the panel when I was on New Faces. He was there <laughs> and was just lovely. Um, Don Black, all these great um, stars of Radio 2 yeah. were there. And it started, there was a tray of vodka martinis. <laughs> this is 12 o'clock on a, a oh. pre-Christmas day, about a week before Christmas. There's this tray of vodka martinis being handed around. It was either that or a mojito or something else. So I went for a martini. I thought, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. But you, there's that saying, you know, one's not enough and three's too many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go down so easy. And I must have had two. And then we went downstairs to a lovely lunch, sitting there, drinking wine and chatting, getting on great with everybody. And then Tony Hatch got up and went to the piano and started singing Christmas songs. And everybody did a, a song and I did have yourself a merry little Christmas. And it went down really well. And people went, yeah. And then Chris Evans went, Les, you were in Chicago, weren't you? And I went, yeah, I was. And he went, cellophane, do Mr. Cellophane. So Tony had said, I know it, it'll be fine. We'll do it. And, and the vodka martinis had kicked in by this point. <laughs> and Tony had, da 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 And he should have gone, if someone stood up in a crowd and raised his voice up way out loud and waved his arm and shook his leg, you'd notice him. If someone in a movie show yelled, firing the second row, this whole place is a powder keg, you'd notice him and on with the song. Mm. I, it went da 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 If some, if some, if, <laughs> if I some, if it, if, it's all right, let's we'll start again. Da 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 I know it now, I know it now. If someone stood up in an, in the, in the, I just could not remember a single word. I said, so I went, let's go to the chorus. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane. And I think I think I was talked down. I think Chris went, no, it's okay, Les, it's fine. We'll, we'll move on to somebody else. Oh, no. And and I, I, I remember sitting back down and thinking, oh, that all these people who I admire <laughs> they were all drunk their faces were all blurred i knew they were drunk their faces were all blurred <laughs> an old jackie hamilton joke and um, <laughs> uh, so i remember at the end of the evening uh, janice long poured me into a taxi and i went home and i think they went on they went on somewhere else but you know that thing when you wake up the next morning you go oh oh no oh I, I, why didn't i just say no and not even attempt it this big patter song. 
So that is, it, it's kind of representative of those days when you, you know, the next day you've, you've done something and, you know, you think, oh, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't learn from it particularly, do you? <laughs> you so. don't learn from it, no. 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 You don't learn from it until the next time. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have many, many years of going to the BBC Light Entertainment Party. Uh, oh, yeah. And that was exactly the same. I fell asleep on the last train home and woke up at four yeah. o'clock in the morning on the sidings in Hastings. <laughs> so... Not a good night. Those light entertainment parties at the BBC, the Christmas parties, they were great, weren't they? Great. I remember being there and, you know, in the 80s, and all our lot, the variety lot, me and Dustin and Little and Large, were all over one side of the room, and there's Rick Mayle and Ben Elton and French and Saunders and all the, the kind of alternative lot all over one other side of the room, because at that time the media had this idea that we all hated each other, which wasn't true. And then I remember the Kofi Annan of comedy, Barry Cryer, managed <laughs> to get us all to mingle and mix. And by the end of the night, we'd had a lovely time and we'd all connected and, and realised we're all in the same business. Yeah. Isn't it funny? Funny. It, you know, it illustrates how awful it was for Claire to stand there going, I don't know anybody, because we are like that with other people yeah, yeah, in yeah. our business, aren't we? We can be, they won't know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Les, well, there we are. Too many of those parties, I've been to a number of them, <laughs> you know, and watched other people make fools of themselves and think, thank God I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. If only. If only. Oh, yeah. Les, how lovely to see you and how lovely to talk. And you. I love that. It was really great. Great. Thank you, Michael. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Les Dennis. If you enjoyed this episode half as much as I enjoyed recording it, then please subscribe to My Time Capsule on Acast or your usual podcast provider, where we hope that if you get the chance, you will rate the show and maybe leave a short review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook by searching me or at MyTCPod. And the theme music you can hear in the background is available in the foreground on Spotify. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and was a cast-off production. Oh, and um, well, my latest album, Nat King Cole's Impressive Number Tunes, is available from all bad record stores now. See ya! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 